Good evening and good night. Welcome back to Tomahawk Talk Graveyard Shift. I'm your host, Scott Clemens. We have, uh, assuming this goes out uh, tomorrow when I want it to go out, we'll have two in one week, which is amazing to me. I'm surprised that uh, I've had, that I've been able to have the time to get all these together. And I think it's the first time we've had like a somewhat consistent release schedule. So I'm very kind of happy with that. And uh, kind of moving out of my own little grief today, uh, last episode, we talked about uh, at, uh, mental health and sport, and that was a little more of a sadder con conversation, a little more deeper stuff. This is not going to be as deep, but I'm sure it's going to be something that's going to pique a lot of your interest. We're going to be talking a lot about uh, soccer ownership and uh, the recent Newcastle United takeover with the public investment fund. And we'll go into a lot of different issues surrounding that. And joining us today, my kind of the person who kind of pitched this idea, nonetheless, uh, kind of my right hand man in the production booth for uh, Tomahawk Talk, uh, Jack Oliaro. How, how are you doing today? Uh, doing pretty good. I've been excited uh, for, you know, this episode for a while. This has been, uh, yeah, been in the works for a bit. So very excited for it. But yes, it certainly has. There's been a lot of kind of like, will it happen? Will it won't happen? Who are we all getting on? A couple pe people jumping in and jumping out. But uh, Jack, I'm happy you're here. Uh, also, uh, also, I'm ha happy to see uh, Benny Moses. He's a he's a guy, V89 correspondent. Uh, he was in Spain last year, I believe. So he hasn't really been as active with the station recently, but uh, we're very happy to have him back. Uh, Benny, how have you been? Good. It's uh, it's glad to be back from being in Spain, and um, I'm really excited about talking about soccer, European football. Um, a lot of a lot of things to discuss, um, and it's just I'm happy to be on the show again. Yeah. Certainly, and uh, last but not least, of course, another guy who has been a little little bit absent from the station recently, but that's just because he's been tearing it up on the ice with the FSU club hockey team. Uh, Brooks Brazeau, welcome back, man. How have you been? Uh, thanks, Scott. Uh, it's good to be back. I've been good. Um, excited to be back uh, doing some V89 content. So here we go. Yeah. But yeah, let's just jump right into it. So the main story, kind of what we are all here to talk about, is the Newcastle United takeover. And there's been a lot of controversy over the past couple couple weeks or couple months actually this has been a surprisingly kind of long move and before we kind of jump into everyone's takes on it I want to give uh listeners a bit of an overview of the situation here so previously uh Newcastle United they are I don't want to say one of the more successful teams in England but one of the more kind of recognizable kind of brands in the sport and they were run by this guy, their previous owner, his name was Mike Ashley. He was uh, the CEO of Sports Direct, which was kind of like Dick Sporting Goods, kind of a popular sporting goods chain within the country. And he, for a litany of different reasons, was very unliked by the fan base. There were complaints over a lack of investment there were complaints about him being personally involved with 
uh, certain in letting kind of his personal judgments kind of cloud his decision making. And long story short, this he, after months and months of pressure from the fan base, decides to sell the club. And while there weren't originally a lot of suitors coming in, one of the biggest investors and the one that generated the most controversy was this group, the Public Investment Fund, which was run by member, which was largely run by members of the Saudi Arabian government, specifically uh, the prince of Saudi Arabia has put a lot, a lot of money forward to make this bid. And originally it was blocked due to concerns of uh, human rights violations in the country and LGBT issues. But now that the move has been has gone through and people are moving forward, there has been a lot of controversy now about money being pumped into a sport, which isn't really a new conversation uh, as we've seen with uh, Chelsea and Manchester City and uh, PSG in France. There's a lot of people getting upset and there's a lot of controversy around foreign, foreign investors kind of participating in European sport. Uh, Jack, what, what is your, I guess, kind of overview of the situation and uh, why do you think there are a lot of English fans that are upset about uh, the South, this kind of new takeover at Newcastle? Uh, this is unlike any takeover that's ever been done before. And that was said when Chelsea took over and Man City took over. And it's done by the numbers because this uh, public investment fund is uh, 20, I have the numbers down here, 21.5 times richer than Man City and 30 times richer than Roman Abramovich, uh, the owner of Chelsea. So this is just, on, this is something I don't think you can even do in uh, FIFA. You can't even cheat this kind of money into the system. It's absolutely insane. And if I'm a lowly soccer team, I'm thinking this is absolute crap. This, um, this random uh, Saudi Arabian um, government's randomly picking on this team and now they're going to get the biggest boost I think we'll ever see, probably in sport. I don't, I can't think of another takeover in any sport that's going to be as big as this one because Chelsea and Man City have endured a bunch of success since uh, they were taken over. And Newcastle isn't, uh, per se, a bad team. They had four English championships, a couple of FA Cups. So they are a pretty decent team in the historical stance, but they've been relegated twice under Mike Ashley. Um, and they, I believe they're still in the relegation battle. Oh, they are in the relegation battle. I believe they're in 17th. So they're in the thick of it right now, uh, just like Man City was. Man City was in a relegation battle when they were getting um, threats of being taken over. And look where they are now. They have won five, cha- or five or more, probably can't even count, Premier League titles, fighting for a UCL. Chelsea's won five Premier League titles since they're there to take over, five FA Cups, two Champions Leagues. The trophy, uh, the accolades do it themselves it doesn't even need money for the assistance but it's going to be a slow rebuild because this is probably um this is a tough gonna be a tough rebuild but with all that money it should be done in a matter of five to ten years you could probably guarantee newcastle will be fighting for a champions league and probably have a premier league under their belt i think it's uh interesting that you kind of bring up the perspective of a being like a low league team watching newcastle watching Newcastle, what, yeah, sorry, watching Newcastle uh, 
suddenly get all this money and are suddenly able to hop, climb up the top of the ladder and win a championship as if it's kind of nothing. Of course, that's going to take, as you said, a little bit of time, probably about five or 10 years, we could see Newcastle really challenging for the title. But one thing that I kind of want to contend with a little bit here was how much of fair competition really is left in the Premier League. And Brooks, you can kind of chime in on this as we've seen with uh, even more with uh, even more than with Chelsea and Manchester City uh, with their ownerships coming in. A lot of what we see as a fair perspective and kind of underdog story of teams climbing up the ladder and winning the Prem, Prem League title title I don't remember at least kind of as long as I've been paying attention to the sport what has happened do you think that still even before the uh takeover of Newcastle do you think that kind of underdog story still exists in the sport I um not uh not not in terms of contending for Premier League titles or or Champions League titles um However, other domestic competitions like your your EFL League Cup or your EFL whatever energy drink sponsor wants to sponsor this cup cup, um, as well as the FA Cup still matters to a lot of people. Um, so I, I think those competitions you'll still see, um, like obviously your bigger money clubs still competing because they have the, the squad depth and all that. Um, but I, I think you'll if you if you see teams such as. Um, can't can't think of one at the moment, but but I, I guess low uh, quote unquote lower level teams like we were talking if they if they get to a a quarterfinal or even a semifinal it's it's a full court press essentially to uh, to win and get to that final and get to Wembley because that still that still really matters to to a lot of people. Um, but in terms of like a competitive balance, um, it, it that has been gone. It, it, it's been gone since since 2008, since Roman Abramovich came in, since, um, and now with, with Newcastle coming in, or the, the Saudi uh, public investment fund coming in, it, it, it just furthers the, the drive away from a competitive balance and, and more shifts your focus towards these teams that essentially have, are writing blank checks and, and essentially are, are spending however much money it takes to, to win football matches. Um, and I think that's incredibly unfortunate. Um, but as, as we all know, it's, it's oil money, it's energy money running football. Yes. Something that I had read uh, kind of leading up to this, this was from a Garner Perkis article in Forbes, was that uh, a lot of people were asking about why Newcastle? Why is uh, this kind of public fund which was originally built on solely on kind of oil and gas revenue now investing in a football club. And what this article had brought up was that up in kind of Northeast of England, there's a lot of space for uh, like kind of what these wind kind of plants are where kind of potential for wind energy up here. And there's, he seemed to kind of, potentially link that uh, this investment into Newcastle is really a space for uh, the public investment fund to really break into the wind energy market and kind of move more into renewable resources. And 
that was something a little bit of that served a little bit of interest to me. Uh, Benny, moving kind of back into football a little bit, we kind of talked about uh, the lack of competition between like upper leagues and lower league clubs. And also with Jack, uh, what he was talking about with how this public investment fund is 20 times richer than uh, some of the other richest owners in the league. Do you think that that competition, even between the bigger clubs, so between Newcastle and the Chelsea's, the United's, the cities, or do you think that competition, that level of competition is going to go away? Well, to answer this whole question on, you know, um, this takeover by the, um, by the, you know, the Saudi Arabian um, to Newcastle, it, it just, it's, it's so bizarre. It's, it's, no one really saw this coming and, and to think Newcastle, why them? Um, but it gives, it gives Newcastle an opportunity to, you know, try to rebuild themselves, get back to where they were. Um, and in terms of competitiveness, yeah, they're going to be starting to, you know, be in that top six. They, they could even form a top seven, uh, like what Jack said, in the next five, ten years. They could be that seventh team um, to always be in the mix uh, of being at the top, um, being, you know, a contender for the Champions League, a contender for the title. Um and, you know, you're going to have those fairy tale teams like Leicester did back in uh, 15 and 16. Um, there's going to be some team that kind of slips into the top four. Um, but with this new takeover, it kind of allows Newcastle to have an opportunity to rebuild themselves, start from start fresh, sign new players, hopefully within the financial fair play rules. Um, because, you know, base, Newcastle basically has a fresh start with a blank check. Um, but I think as time goes on, we'll see less and less repeat champions, especially with these takeovers and more money. Yeah. So are you saying that uh, with this Newcastle takeover, it's going to provide more kind of competition into this? Like it's going to make this league more competitive or what is the I'm yeah, can you elaborate a bit, bit on that? Um, well, it, it, it's it's not like other sports leagues like in the NBA, um, the NFL, where some players want to go where the money is. Um, Newcastle, honestly, I, I have nothing against it, but I would honestly rather play in a more prestige club like a Liverpool or a Chelsea as opposed to Newcastle um, because of just the history and the, the rich fan base there. Um, but honestly, like, in terms of competition, you know, when you, when you have a lot of money, players kind of, if they're selfish enough where they want to go where the money is, then they're going to go there. They're going to build up these, this like super team. I, you know, I know as, uh, as the, the news of this takeover came about, we saw on the FIFA memes and all that um, where like the teams were built up as Newcastle, like all these top players, like, like Salah and, 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 I don't know, Firmino or just the top players around the world, like Messi, Ronaldo, all going to Newcastle um, because that's where the money is. Um, but I would hope to see more competition as just, you know, instead of the top three in the Premier League. And I feel like this is a, a good way to see that happen. Yeah. 
It's interesting that you kind of bring up uh, Mo Salah for uh, those of you who don't know, uh, he is quickly kind of one of becoming one of the stars in the sport. I would say a bit of a bit of kind of a late bloomer had a bit of kind of was a bit of a journeyman early in his career, but has really started since uh, joining Liverpool a couple years ago has really started to establish himself as one of the top talents in the league and has kind of made a, uh, Arabic nations and uh, the Middle East more a little made people more aware of soccer in the Middle East. And I think that what a little bit of what you're seeing with uh, Mo Salah and with the uh, Newcastle takeover and with the Qatar World Cup that's coming up, you're seeing this kind of assert, you're seeing this kind of resurgence of Middle Eastern football coming back. Uh, Brooks, you you and I have talked a little bit and you, I think, have a lot to say about kind of the Qatar World Cup. But before we kind of get into the nitty gritty of that, what do you necessarily think about kind of the rise of popularity uh, of the game in kind of that region and what is being kind of broadcast to the world about kind of Middle Eastern politics and sport? So I, I think um, you bring up Mo Salah and, and his contributions to the, um, the essentially the atmosphere around soccer in e- Egypt has been, has been interesting um, to the point where he, they actually are now starting to teach uh, about Mohammed Salah in, in their schools um, as a, a testament to his, his perseverance or something like that. Uh, but uh I think uh, a big part of the Middle Eastern resurgence, you say, or the Middle Eastern investment in, um, in soccer or football, it has to do with a concept called sport washing, where you have these Middle Eastern states that have ridiculous amounts of money, and they're, they're funneling it into these big clubs, these PSGs, these Manchester cities, um, and even Barcelona, who forever didn't have a kid sponsor, and now... Qatar Airways writes this ridiculous check, uh, and now they have a kit sponsor. It says Qatar Airways on it. Um, Roma as well. I, I think the Roma kits are very cool, but I will not buy one because it says Qatar, uh, or it's a, it, it associates with Qatar, uh, unfortunately. But it, it, it really relates to the uh, idea of sport washing, which is um, essentially funneling money into this thing, into this entity to distract from human rights abuses or or abuses of journalists and homosexuals, um, which I view as absolutely terrible. Um, so, so from that aspect, I think it's absolutely uh, unacceptable. But um, unfortunately, and as you mentioned, the Qatar World Cup—that's a—that's a whole separate thing. But unfortunately, that's that's kind of the way we're going here in the in the world of football. I I, re- I really wish there was more um, that we could do uh, as supporters. Um, uh, you've seen uh, specifically on the Qatar World Cup with those human rights violations. You've seen like the Norwegian national team wear shirts that say uh, uh, "Human Rights Now" or, or something to that effect. Um, so you, you've seen uh, slight player protests um, and, and team protests, but um, until like a, a big dog like Germany or or Spain qualifies and, and says, you know what, we're not going to go um, to the World Cup or something like that, I think it's going to be tough to really see change um, on that aspect of things. 
it's certainly kind of uh it's certainly kind of a tough issue i guess and a tough thing to say uh jack uh what would you say is there really anything kind of supporters can do to kind of stop this kind of what we see as sport washing a little bit like how much power do supporters actually hold in uh the everyday operations of their teams well, for a while, I could not answer that for you until this past summer when the Super League was announced. And the Super League is a whole another topic that I'll, uh, in summation, it was a, the larger, most, um, the clubs with most of the money in European football coming together, uh, forming their uh, Super League, so to speak. So taking the Champions League side out of it, basically just saying, uh, basically guaranteeing all of them a good amount of money for them to play in this competition. So big teams are always playing big teams. It was uh, a money grab by all of them to secure their uh, finances. And especially with COVID, that, that was uh, you know, a subject of concern is how can we secure our finances if we can't get people in the stadiums and um, other fanfare of that nature. But in, um, in that, we see that, I'm losing my train of thought here, but, um, but with, the, uh, with the money and the Super League and all that, what happens with that is that, no, that was sport washing, but what happened is that the fans came together. Um, this actually happened uh, best at a Man United and Liverpool game where Man United, Man United supporters uh, rushed the field, rushed the stadium actually, because at the time in COVID, uh, they weren't allowed to have people in. And it was, there was tarps down everything. Uh, a group of Man United supporters broke into the stadium. Um, were running over the tarps, stealing stuff from the stadium, uh, causing, a, uh, causing a scene. I don't want to, I don't want to pull it to a certain thing, but it was kind of, it was like, I want to say it was almost like the capital being rushed, but that's definitely not on the same level, but it was like a football stadium just got uh, right and rushed into. It was something that's really never been seen or hasn't been seen in English football for a long time since their hooligan days back in the, uh, back in the eighties before it got cleaned up. And um, well, with the power of that is that we saw most of the teams drop out, except I believe it's right now just Barca, Real Madrid and Juventus, uh, teams who aren't even looking that strong uh, European-wise. I know Real Madrid's uh, nearing top table in Spain and Barca's having their whole spiel, but they just got Xavi, so that's a whole other topic. And Juve is, I believe, only eighth, so these aren't even solid teams. And if anything, they should probably push their league for the first Super League because right now they're not doing well, and if you don't do well, you, you don't secure that money. So it was a money grab, and um, how the fans reacted was crucial in that the club's heard them and pulled out had that had this not happened and let's say no one said anything if there was any fans who actually cared or said anything this would have gone through it would have devalued the importance of these clubs the importance of uh, these smaller teams uh, in soccer that really build up these big teams because you need small teams to have big teams and it was just going to devalue the and um, decredit the game of soccer on a club level and maybe it would have leaked into the international level and it hasn't in the international level yeah you got something to say yeah, no, and I and I, I agree with you on that, and I, I think it also speaks to, um, and with with the big clubs in England for the most part, like if you look at Liverpool and you look at um, Manchester United, two of the bigger clubs in in England, and two of the big clubs in the world. Um, I think it really because because who are their owners, right? Who, who are their their Americans, right? So it, it I think you know I, it speaks a little bit uh, and maybe a lot of it to the to the disconnect between the American sporting culture in that we have a closed system and all the money is guaranteed and your revenue sharing and the, 
the way that leagues are run is so much different than the way leagues are run in Europe. Part of that. Um, so I, I think that definitely plays plays into it. Yeah, uh, it's interesting kind of to bring that up because we're gonna we're actually gonna pivot a little bit away from Newcastle here. But when we're looking at, uh, I guess we can talk about specifically Premier League, but this could really be represented uh, all around Europe. There seems to be a lot of kind of disconnect between uh, club ownership and fans. And, uh, you know, Brooks kind of added on to this a little bit, but uh, Manchester United have American owners. Uh, Liverpool, Arsenal are uh, all American owned. Uh, Chelsea, uh, Roman Abramovich is uh, a Russian owner. Newcastle now have been taken over by the Saudis. Uh, Benny, what kind of exactly is the source of kind of the disconnect between ownership and fans and how can this necessarily be mended if that's even possible? Well, to answer your question, um, so I'm like, you know, a big Valencia fan, obviously, um, but it, it, it serves the same purpose because you have these owners with a lot of money wanting to invest in, in, in their clubs and everything, but essentially don't know how to run the organization. Um, I'm not saying that's for, for every um, club and organization around Europe, but, you know, take, take Valencia, for example, other, other league, obviously. Um, but they used to be at the top, you know, they, they won the Copa del Rey two years ago, had a, a, an amazing squad um, with Ferran Torres and, and all of them. Um, but with this owner, he fires the he fires the um, the coach. He sells pretty much four or five like decent players, like the core players of the the lineups. And obviously, the fans are going to react to that because they don't want to see them go. They obviously want to see success in their club. But then, when you have an owner who knows like minimal knowledge to no knowledge at all about the inner workings and the surroundings of what's going on in the club, then you're going to have some retaliation. You're going to have some outcry of the fans. And, you know, I feel like, I feel like owners and shareholders, they owe it up. They owe it to their, their fans because, you know, without, without success, you're not going to have much of a supporting uh, fan base. You know, everyone can make fun of Arsenal for how bad they do. Um, and anytime someone sees an Arsenal fan, they're like, Oh, Hey, how's it going? You doing all right? Like your club's kind of, eh, um, even though they are kind of doing okay now, but it's, it's that, that example. It's just like these, there's a fine line between the owners and the fans. Um, and the owners really have to know more so about soccer and can't just be the strictly business. That makes sense. Yes. And it's very kind of interesting that uh, kind of the ways this disconnect is being kind of sown and a lot of ways. And at least the way I see that is that you're seeing a lot of these kind of clubs start to hire kind of these former players, these club legends coming back uh, as majors. Uh, Xavi got hired as uh, the Barcelona manager this week after I think he was the manager of this club and was it in Saudi Arabia for about a year. I think. And then you have uh, Steven Gerrard, a Liverpool legend coming back, not to manage Liverpool, but to uh, ask, but to take over as the 
manager of Aston Villa, another kind of storied club in England, England, though not really as successful as the Reds. And then you also have Frank Lampard, Chelsea club, club legend who came in as a manager and uh, you have Mikel Arteta and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer at uh, both at Arsenal and Man United respectively. And at least in the case of those latter two, these kind of young inexperienced managers, they haven't really been doing so well. And especially for Ole this season, his kind of heads, he's been on the bit of a hot seat recently. Uh, Jack, do you kind of think that when owners bring in these club legends and then uh, results aren't coming back, do you think there's a little bit of reservation and uh, them kind of firing these guys because they don't want to uh, anger a fan base that's already kind of upset with how they maybe are making decisions and how they are running the team? And do you think there's a little bit of a reservation there as opposed to maybe a uh, manager who's not as well like connected with the team itself? Well, in terms of these young and experienced managers, uh, just as in sports, young managers are being hired anywhere at different ages. You see this in football. You see this, uh, say, Los Angeles Rams. You see this in baseball. Like almost nearly every sport is going younger with their managers, younger with their players. The generation is youth. And in soccer, you see this especially. Xavi just got hired. And Frank Lampard, the Chelsea legend who was coaching at Chelsea for a uh, little under a year, wasn't very successful, just got hired at Norwich, I believe today or yesterday. So he was just hired at another Premier League team. And in the case of Ollie, who who has had a who's had an absolute time at uh, Man United, uh, he was a legend uh, back in when he scored against Bayern Munich in the Champions League in 99 and 2000. But while he's managed, uh, it's been ups and downs. You get these runs where they go two months without a defeat and you, they think in Ollie's at the wheel and then things go in absolute array where things can go there. You, yeah. <laughs> Ollie. And then all of a sudden Ollie's not at the wheel or that's what the opposing fans say when they're doing poorly, where they'll go maybe two months with no wins or an, an X amount of draws and um, hiring, hiring um, club legends is kind of a, is really easy to do because you obviously appeal to your uh, fans and, if say if it was a normal manager, you know the fans don't have that trust in him. But by hiring uh, Ollie, they they had a um, some room to work with because he's already well liked, and unfortunately his name he's one of the few I think whose name's been severely tainted by his time as being a manager. He never had too much success uh, as a head uh, in the head coaching role, and he came in as a caretaking manager who um, he wasn't really supposed to be the guy, but he became the guy when Ollie was at the wheel. But now it's been two or three years and it's just been a and what they did get second last year in a topsy-turvy premier league but it, it, it was really interesting because you can afford so much time with these club legends but it seems like nothing ever gets done For hiring frank lampard lampard was also kind of a eh, move this is a guy who didn't have too much coaching experience but he was later. He was later fired and replaced replaced by an actual content manager, Thomas Tuchel, who took them to a Champions League, and now they are leading the Premier League. So, yeah, I'm sure Scott's very happy about that. Don't care. Um, when this happens, you see the results, and Liverpool have Jurgen Klopp, who's actually like gone through the ranks, who's gone through Germany to earn his way up there, 
uh, coached at the highest of teams in uh, Dortmund and then moved to Liverpool. And with Arteta, another uh, Arsenal, I don't even say legend. He, he was a player. He was, he was a player at Arsenal. And the only reason why he was really touted as highly is because he was under Pep Guardiola, an actually brilliant manager who managed Barca in their glory days and, and has brought glory days to Man City. So it is a weird time with managers, with youth and all that, but it's youth, but youth only comes when you have so much experience. You're not getting actually like youth managers who are, um, I've actually earned their credit. I think the only one I can only point is Hugo, is Julian Nagelsmann, who is currently at Bayern, who's actually earned his way up the ladder. So do I think Ali probably should be gone. If it was any other manager, he'd, he'd be gone. But because he has that club, because he has that uh, prestige, he's still there. And maybe at the end of the year, he's not there. But the way that we're going with it, it just seems like these big teams are just putting a – trying to put out the fire with something that's not really going to put it out. It's just a temporary placeholder, but nothing's been done at Man U. You saw the five, nothing loss to Liverpool a couple of weeks ago and you see Arsenal. Um, they've picked it up as of recently, but last year they looked atrocious. They were in the relegation uh, zone up until maybe November or December. So I'm not sure if these, this should happen, but here we are. This is the state of soccer. And who knows what's going to happen to Javi? We don't know. He has manager experience in um, the Middle East, but we have no idea how that will translate. There will probably be an initial push of, you know, Javi's in charge and he is um, absolutely running things, but we don't know. It could drop off. Uh, yes. And uh, Brooks, I'm going to move over to you now. You, uh, It was your team, Liverpool FC or Liverpool Football Club, that uh, kind of threw Ole Gunnar – Ole kind of off the wheel a little bit and uh it seems that uh while Jurgen Klopp is nowhere near kind of leaving it seems that uh Steven Gerrard is going going to be building up his resume in order to kind of take Klopp's position when uh when he finally does leave the club uh what are your I guess kind of thoughts on I guess kind of how that transition would work and uh, when necessarily that would happen. So I, I uh, going back to kind of what Jack said, I think, I think there's a difference between um, like being a manager and earning like the spot you're at. Um, like if we look at Steven Gerrard, for example, he just didn't, he just, ran through the Scottish league last season. He didn't lose a single game with in the league. Um, so, so I would argue that that, that warrants a move to a down back down South to a, to an Aston Villa, for example. Now um, what, what we didn't see with like Frank Lampard or Ali Gunnar Solskjaer, for example, was, was that body of work and then building to a bigger job. Like Lampard has handed the Chelsea job uh, last year two years ago or whatever it was versus versus Steven Gerrard I think he'll go about it in the in the proper way if you will where he'll you'll see a natural progression from Rangers to to Aston Villa and I actually I would like to see him at Aston Villa for like four or five ish years just because he, even Aston Villa to Liverpool is, is a big step up um, Klopp's contract expires in uh, in 2024 um, after that, 
Uh, I would actually like to see our assistant manager, Pepjin Linders, uh, take over because he's been he's been that second guy under Klopp um, for however long he's been uh, since uh, since he came in. So so I think uh, if, if if a natural progression was Klopp to Linders. Um, and then eventually to Gerard, assuming that Gerard continues on his progression up the ranks uh, and, and continues to prove this body of work, um, I, I would have I would have no issue with him taking over. Um, but uh, I, I do think there needs to be a, a natural progression. We can't just be handing out managerial titles at, at Liverpool Football Club, at, at Chelsea, at, at Arsenal and places like these big clubs to um, just just simply for for being Steven Gerrard or for being Frank Lampard. I do want to take a second step away and I want to defend my guy Frank for a second here in that uh, you said he was kind of handed the Chelsea job. I would, I don't necessarily disagree with that, but I think we should also look at where Chelsea was in that situation with uh, they had a transfer ban coming in. They had a manager and Mauricio Sarri, who was really unpopular with the fan base. And so there was kind of a needed move from uh, Roman Abramovich to get a guy that he knew would be more kind of likable to the, to the public. And that's what Frank was. And I think like, it's maybe a little unfair to say he was handed the job. Was he, was he ready for a job at the caliber at Chelsea was when uh, he was offered the position? His body of work clearly shows that he was not. But I think it's maybe mainly unfair to say that he was kind of handed the job or was necessarily unqualified for that position. And uh, Benny, I kind of want to turn to you now. In Spain, we've seen a lot of these kind of uh, club legend players turn manager cases kind of be successful. We've seen that and Pep Guardiola getting to start at Barcelona with uh, Zidane at uh, Real, Real Madrid. And now we're kind of seeing it coming back around with uh, Xavi rejoining Barcelona. How uh, successful do you think that that move is going to be? And do you think it's made going to be easier or harder for him than it was maybe for Pep or Zidane to kind of get Barcelona back to where they want to be. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I feel like this is a great move for Barcelona, especially in the turmoil that they're experiencing right now. Um, Xavi, club legend, Spanish legend, fan favorite. I mean, he's got all the right pieces. He's a tactical mastermind, uh, especially you know, he made his team in Saudi Arabia look like Barcelona back in 2012. Um, yeah, all the tiki-taka. Um, it, it, it looks, it's poetry in motion. And I really believe that he's going to rebuild this team. I mean, they're sitting, I believe, in ninth place right now, which is, you know, three months into the season, you would have never thought that Barcelona would be here. Um, and I will have to say that Barcelona is dealing with so many injuries right now. Um, you go to their depth chart and it just it, it looks like uh, a hospital, a medical clinic because of all the injuries that they're dealing with. So he's going to be given this job uh, with definitely a mountain to climb. Um, but I think I think he's definitely uh, up for it and he can definitely do it um, in terms of player coaches. Um, 
you look at a guy like Unai Emery too, uh, head coach for Villarreal. You know, Villarreal is just, they've always been mid-tier. You, you would never think that they would achieve something as, as, as they did last year. Um, they won, I believe, the, the um, Europa League, um, which is an incredible feat. Uh, so and now they're kind of slipping because they're trying to deal with um, how hard the Champions League is this year. Um, I believe they're in a group with uh, Man United and Atalanta, which is they've always been solid teams the past few years. Um, but having that that player coach or former former player now coach um, Pep did a great job um, because he had such a great. Such a great team with Messi Suarez, um, but I wouldn't take anything out of uh, his coaching abilities because he went from Man uh, Barcelona to Man City and and made that made a name for himself as well as um, Man City. But you know, in terms of of Xavi, I I wish him the best. Um, hopefully, he doesn't do well against Valencia. But I think it's a great move, great way to turn things around, especially from their financial um, position, um, because, you know, some players had to take a cut. So it's going to be hard for him to find players, especially on a tight budget. Um, but I know he can do it, and he's definitely up for the task. Uh, I just gotta, sorry, just a quick note about uh, Xavi uh, and their financial troubles with Barca. I think Xavi is not only a club uh, – he is a club legend, but – People, uh, I think players will just want to play for Xavi, for Xavi and what he did in the uh, for his other club with the Tiki Taka. That's 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 kids' dreams. That they're they're playing that in their heads, and the uh, opportunity to do that gives Barcelona a huge opportunity to maybe not underpay her, but potentially just uh, sign players for a lower fee than normal just to play for him. And I think that could play a huge role if everything goes accordingly for Barcelona. Yeah, it's certainly interesting. And uh, Jack, I'm going to pinball back to you for a moment here. But uh, this kind of question is where I think we're going to kind of close discussion for a little bit. Do uh, when we see uh, ownership that uh, kind of in the case of Manchester United, Newcastle and these owners that are seeing kind of a lack of trust from the fan base and they hire these inexperienced major inexperienced kind of coaches managers that have a lot of respect with the fans do you do you think that top clubs in doing kind of making these moves are good for the game or would you rather see someone in a position like a Jurgen Klopp or Jose Mourinho who kind of had to earn their stripes a little bit and build up from uh, smaller leagues in Europe until they get kind of these top jobs and reach kind of these ever ending glory like do you uh think that this is that you there is long-term success in hiring these kind of young and experienced managers the only reason why you'd want to hire a young experienced manager is that well one you want to bring in the case of i'm going to just use Javi here is that you want to bring um you want to bring some happiness to your fan base but it's a, a short term generally but in, not in the case of Javi. But for, let's say, Man United and Newcastle, Man United is in a weird spot where they've just, you know, fallen off fallen off a map in consideration to where they were uh, when Alex Ferguson, uh, you know, retired. 
And I'd rather see, I mean, obviously you'd rather see um, players, or I'm sorry, managers work their way up, but I don't mind seeing uh, managers like Steven Gerrard, who had a decent, who got a decent um, run in, in Scotland, again, went perfect uh, this past season. And he's not going to the likes of Liverpool or Chelsea or any one of that. So he's going to Aston Villa. He's going to a slightly below mid table. I believe last day they were mid table. It's a mid, it's a mid tier side. And that's a great platform to grow because it's not like you're fighting just to stay mid table. Uh, If things go accordingly, Gerard could be fighting for top four, fighting for champions league. And that's always good to see. And we'd rather it be rewarded that way rather than someone just be handing a job. And I want to go as for Frank Lampard, you brought up a good point in that. Uh, Maurizio Sarri was not very popular with uh, the Chelsea fan base. And if you want to make the people happy, why not bring your probably arguably one of your best um, players ever. And it was a short-term solution because at the time there weren't any too, too many coaching availabilities. And then once they fired uh, Lampard, Tuka fell in their lap and here they are now playing some amazing football, getting the best out of every player that they spent um, and going back uh, to Klopp and, other Mourinho, yeah, Mourinho and them, they all worked their way up. Uh, they weren't, they were pretty much just low class players and then you know, turned managers and they uh, worked out beautifully. I don't have a problem with players, big time players who turn into big time managers. I don't have a problem with that. I only have a problem if you are a big time player, have no body of work and go to a big time club. And that's why I didn't like the move of Frank Lampard. I liked it as an opposition because I didn't think it was going to go well. And it didn't really fail. It, I mean, it, it we're there now, so it kind of worked out for them. But and now he's getting a job at Norwich, which is way more. Um, he has way more room for error, and it's a tough job. But if he can overcome that, then he's earned maybe the likes of uh, maybe a mid-tier club or a top club if he can um, achieve good things in Norwich. So I don't. Again, I don't mind if uh, these big names earn um, jobs. You just hope that they deliver. And that they're not cheating out guys like uh, Jurgen Klopp, Thomas Tuchel, Julian Nagelsmann, who have earned their way there. And that's just in life too, in politics, in any way. You don't want to be, you don't want to be cheated just because someone has more um, power, connections, and stuff like that. You want to earn your way. You want to, you don't want to be cheated by that. You earned your way. You do your hard work. So, it's something that's in sports. Something that's in life. So. Will it go away? Probably not. It's something that's been around. It's just this the most prolific it likely has been. And we'll probably see more of it in the future. But clubs need to be smart enough to know what is a good hire and what's not a good hire. I think um, Xavi is a good hire. He has a good body of work. Frank Lampard, we'll see what he does. He now does have experience at Chelsea. But And um, as for the other managers, I guess we'll just wait and see. Interesting time in um, interesting time in soccer. We're in a bit of a turning um, turning point here with um, as we're entering the uh, not post Messi, but we're entering the latter of the Messi Ronaldo era. So very interesting times. Yes, for sure, very interesting. And that's really about all I have for this discussion. And before everyone leaves, though, it is current at the time we are recording this. It is November eleventh. And as of right now, Chelsea currently sit at the top of the Premier League table, 26 points, followed by Manchester City and then West Ham, who are tied with uh, 23 and just three points back. And then Liverpool is at fourth, a total of four points back from Chelsea at sitting at 22. It's a very kind of contentious race this year. Uh, Brooks, we'll start with you. Uh, 
in the end, what, like what happens, who, who takes home the title? What are we, are there any shocks in the system? What are we kind of looking at here? I don't, uh, I don't see any like major shocks. Um, I, as to who gets that fourth um, spot. Cause I, I think it's a, I think it's a three horse race going into the season. I, I legitimately thought it was going to be back to Manchester city and Liverpool. Um, I have a, I have a friend who's a Manchester United fan who is insistent upon the fact that they, they would be there, but they're just, they're not. Um, and as we talked about earlier, Ali Gunnar Solskjaer, if he's not a, you know, and I said the same thing last year with, with Frank Lampard in a sense that neither of them are title winning managers and not, not that Thomas Tuchel scares me because I, I do still think we have the best manager in the world and, and one of, if not the best squads in the world, um, especially when you have uh, Mo Salah <laughs> running up and down the wing. Um, so, so I do see um, Liverpool bouncing back from what is a, what would be a, uh, an uncharacteristic loss uh, to West Ham. But, but as we can, as we see now, um, West Ham's playing some pretty good football. Uh, so, so I, I expect them to hang around. They ended up qualifying for, uh, Europa league last season. So, um, so obviously it's a quality side that, that knows pretty much what they're doing. I'd imagine Jesse Lingard, uh, makes his way back to West Ham in January, uh, which is a, a great signing for them. Uh, so, I mean, it, it's going to be between Liverpool, Manchester city and, and Chelsea for the title. And then that fourth spot, probably West Ham, I'd be surprised if Tottenham is there, but especially with Harry Kane looking, uh, I don't think I'm out of place saying he looks a little uninterested uh, to be there, uh, which is unfortunate because the the more he's uh, the more he's invested, the the better that team is, um, especially with him and Son um, and, and the other quality players they have around him. So, uh, for, uh, to reiterate. Uh, as it, as, it, as it comes down to the, the title, Chelsea, Manchester City, Liverpool, any combination of those three, probably. Um, and, the, and then that fourth spot, who knows? It, it could be Arsenal for all we know. They're, they're playing some pretty good ball right now. So, so we'll see. All right. And uh, Benny, we'll go to you next. I know you're not the kind of biggest e- EPL guy here, but uh, what, who do you think is going to come home with the trophy at the end of the year? Well, uh, the way I see it, honestly, you, you guys might hate me for this, but I'm going to go Man City. I'm picking Man City as my, my winners to uh, my, my pick to win the EPL. Um, you know, it's just I, I their depth is just they have a lot of depth. Um, I might not know. I might not be, you know, too experienced and I might not know what I'm talking about, but it's just on paper, their talent. And their coach, that chemistry right there. I mean, they're not they're not too far off. Only three points from Chelsea, but you know, looking at their schedule, they've got Everton, they got West Ham, which will be tough. But then they got bottom teams: Aston Villa, Watford, and Wolves. Um, you know, that right there can definitely boost their confidence going into uh, winter break. Um, but I, I, I do agree with Brooks. It's definitely going to be a Chelsea, Man City, Liverpool race. Um, my opinion, Man City will become victorious at the end of it, followed by Chelsea, Liverpool. And I'm going to throw it out there. I'm going to give it to Arsenal, fourth. Ooh, in, 
bold choice kind of going there. Arsenal sne- sneaking into the Premier Premier League. I or sneaking in the top four there. I I'm going to be a homer here. I don't think there is any doubt in my mind. Chelsea are the team that I've watched the most, and I think what we have seen is that there it's definitely a three horse race here between Chelsea, Man City, and Liverpool. And uh, I Chelsea have a significant amount of depth that I don't think a lot of people really talk about. And what we have seen er, early on is that you've seen Chelsea be in games that uh, maybe they should not win. Maybe they're not the best team on the, on the pitch at that time, but they gain out results specifically when they played Liverpool early in the season and went a man down and grinded it out defensively to kind of get to kind of earn a draw there or earn a draw in that game. And if there's anyone, as we've seen over the past couple of seasons, if there's anyone who can stop Pep Guardiola, it is Thomas Tuchel. And so that's kind of why I'm going to give Chelsea a nod. And then Jack, last but not least, uh, quickly, what is your kind of prediction for how the season unfolds? Um, I'm going to just reiterate everyone else has said here because it is a three-horse race between Chelsea, Man City, and Liverpool. I would like to give West Ham the fourth just because Man United are stumbling upon themselves and we don't know when they're going to pick their feet up. Arsenal have had an easy schedule and that's why they've gotten their way back to fifth. Everyone has the same schedule, just not how they're played. So I think they're going to drop off a little bit. Spurs are they're out for the season. They, they may grab a Europa League spot, but I want to see what they do next year with Conte. Conte has a reputation of having, um, he was at Chelsea, had a short run at Chelsea, but took them from uh, eighth place, took them uh, to a title very quickly. And then things fell apart uh, pretty quickly. So it'd be interesting to see what they do. Um, they could still maybe sneak into a top four, potentially uh, based on how they play. Very disciplined uh, teams and defensive-minded are uh, Conte's. And um Lester's been disappointing me, but I don't know. I, 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 I'm, I'm kind of reading what everyone else is saying, but three horse race, uh, fourth spot, I think we'll go to West Ham if um, Man United and Arsenal fumble the bag. And um, yeah, that, that probably should be it. Also, just throughout Real Madrid will probably win the Liga. Um, Juve's tripping on themselves. It's a, in Serie A, it's between, um, between Napoli and AC Milan, very good fight there. Uh, Inter still in that. In Germany, it's still a good race between RB Leipzig, um, Dortmund, and um, and Bayern. So, very, a lot of a lot of interesting stuff. Some of the usual suspects going on around uh, Europe. PSG is obviously dominating, but very interesting times. Very uh, interesting to see what happens, especially since Spain's kind of down and out, not really looking like European title uh, contenders and. Going to look to mainly England, uh, maybe Bayern, and um, as maybe Champions League runners, and along with PSG. So, yeah, it's definitely an in- interesting time. And uh, now, kind of closing out, I want to thank all of you for coming here, uh, Jack Brooks, Benny. This is something that has kind of been on the to-do list for a while, and I've been looking at it, and I was excited because I knew that uh, we had a bunch of very kind of capable, qualified people to really kind of have this discussion. And that's definitely what y'all brought to the table today. And I really appreciate that. Uh, For those of you at home, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. And you've been listening to 
WVFS Tallahassee, the voice of Florida State. We'll see you next time.